Our scripture reading this morning comes from Luke 10, verses 25 through 37. This can be found on page 1612 in your pew Bibles. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. He asked, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus answered, What is written in the law? How do you read it? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked, Jesus. And who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The one who had mercy on him. Go and do likewise. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Fifth grade, and I think there was possibly some fourth grade involved in that. <clears throat> Thinking those robbers had a little too much fun doing that. But I think there's a doctrine about that as well. The parable of the, the Good Samaritan is our start into this series on gospel neighboring. And so uh, let's, uh, let's just bow in a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, as we consider your words to us again, and as we consider this topic, that it feels like um, many of us should already be experts at. As we think about loving our neighbors, would you be our teacher once again this morning? Give us your spirit, that I may speak your words that we may hear what you have to say and apply it to our lives, that we may be changed uh, when we leave here. And this is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Sisters and brothers in Jesus Christ, <clears throat> I love the Apostle Peter. 
not just because he's my namesake, but because time and again he seems to put into words what is going on in so many of our minds. I'm thinking right now of, of Matthew 18, where Jesus has been talking about forgiving the person, the brother who sins against us. And, and Peter asks in that context, Jesus, um, how many times must I forgive my brother? Up to seven times? And I think we all know, or at least many of us do, Jesus' response. And he says, not seven times, Peter, but 70 times, seven times. <clears throat> That's how often we are supposed to forgive. And then he tells a story. Jesus tells a story. What's Peter looking for there? He's looking for some boundary, right? He's saying, well, Jesus, forgiveness can't be limitless, can it? I mean, give us, give us some boundaries here. Let's put some, let's put some limits around our obligations, something that we can manage, something that we can actually do. And Jesus <clears throat> tells him a story, doesn't necessarily give him that answer. Now, does that sound familiar at all? Ask a question, get a story? Here in Luke chapter 10, Jesus is approached by a lawyer. Now, this lawyer is a little different from those that many of us know today. He's not trained in law school, but he's trained in seminary. He's an expert in biblical law. What must I do to inherit eternal life, he asks. And Jesus turns that question back on him. What does the law say, he says. How do you read the law? You're an expert. Now, that's sort of a softball question, um, especially for this person. What, is, what does the law say? It didn't take an expert in the law to know what Deuteronomy 6 says, most Ordinary Jews would have been able to recite this without a problem. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Ordinary Jewish families repeated that, what was called the Shema, two to three times every day. Okay? Every day. And so they would have been able to rattle that answer back without a problem. Here we have an expert in the law, and Jesus is asking him basically the same question. Now, we don't know if every Jewish family would have added on that next line about loving your neighbor as yourself. That doesn't come from Deuteronomy 6. That comes from Leviticus 19. And so it takes a little putting two things together, right? It, it takes thinking through that loving God might actually involve loving my neighbor as well. Both of those things are a part of what it means to keep the law, to keep the entire law. And that's the answer that the lawyer gives. He gives this, or this answer that both of these things need to be present if I'm going to inherit eternal life. And Jesus agrees. Okay? We know from elsewhere that that's exactly how Jesus interpreted the law himself. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so he says, do this and you will live. Now, this is where things get a little bit interesting <clears throat> because suddenly the lawyer finds himself in the exact same position 
that Peter found himself in Matthew 18, and that things are very, very open-ended. Jesus leaves things very open-ended, and so he asks, I need a little clarification. Who exactly is my neighbor? Okay, who exactly is my neighbor? And what does Jesus do? He tells him a story. Doesn't give him the answer, tells him a story. But before we get to the story, we should see that Luke here, I think, gives us a glimpse, a little bit of a glimpse into this attorney. He's a confident man. For one, he's confident that he at least has the first table of the law nailed down. Notice that he doesn't ask for further clarification on what it means to love God. For instance, he doesn't ask, and and who exactly is God? Could you clarify that for me, Jesus, so I have a better idea how to love him? No, he's, he's got that part down. I think he's also pretty confident about this neighbor love stuff. But he is a lawyer, and lawyers tend to see things just a little bit different than the rest of us. Scott Jose tells an old lawyer story. Someone came up to a lawyer and asked, if I give you $100, will you answer two questions for me? And the man immediately responded, sure I will. What's your second question? (laughs) Lawyers tend to see things just a little bit differently, and this man sees a potential problem with the language here that we're using. Love your neighbor. Okay? And we said, the problem is, if you don't put any kind of boundaries around that word neighbor, you could make this command just about impossible to keep. And so he asks Jesus for more definition, more clarity. In your opinion, who is this neighbor that I must love? Let's put some flesh on these bones, Jesus. Frederick Buechner gives gives us, I think, a little taste of perhaps what this this man was, was looking for. He was hoping that Jesus would give this kind of an answer. Who is my neighbor? Henceforth, a neighbor, hereafter referred to as the party of the first part, shall be defined as meaning a person of Jewish descent whose legal residence is within a radius of no more than three statute miles from one's own legal residence, unless there is another person of Jewish descent, hereafter referred to as the party of the second part, living closer to the party of the first part than one is oneself. In which case, the party of the second part is to be construed as the neighbor to the party of the first part, and one is then oneself relieved of all responsibility of any kind to the matters hereunto appertaining. That, I think, is the kind of answer that this man was hoping for. Jesus, give that word neighbor some definition so I know what exactly I'm supposed to do. But Jesus doesn't go anywhere near that kind of definition, does he? In fact, his answer is a bit frustrating. He tells a very vague story about a certain man. That's what the Greek says. The English covers it pretty well. There's a certain man who gets mugged one day, and that's all the detail we get. There's a man who needs help. And when we hear that, even today, we can't help but asking, I think, for more detail. Jesus, 
is our neighbor really anyone who needs help? You may have noticed that the first question up here in our cafe this morning was exactly that question. Who is our neighbor? And that's because when we talked about this in worship committee, that was our first question as well. Who exactly is our neighbor? How does Jesus define that? What's he asking us to do? Is a neighbor someone who is near or far? What if I travel? Does that mean that I have more neighbors than the average person? Will that increase my number of neighbors? Is a neighbor anyone I know? We heard that answer today. Is a neighbor Jewish? Is he Gentile? Is he a citizen or is he a migrant? Is she gay? Is she straight? Is she Roman? Is she Greek? Is she slave? Is she free? What about countries? Can they be our neighbors too? What about Ukraine? Should we consider the nation of Ukraine to be a neighbor? How do you define that word neighbor? Even if we define neighbor as anyone who needs help, I think we still want to know more. We want more detail. How much should I help Jesus? And, and how, for how long should I help? I mean, should my help just be a one-time thing, or should it continue on for a while? How much should I pay? Should I just pay that one initial fee, or should I expect to pay more and more after that? What if this person has kids? Am I obligated to care for the kids as well? What if there are injuries that are long-term, not just short-term stuff, but long-term? What if he can't walk? What are my obligations then? What if he requires some kind of emotional support animal? Is that my responsibility? Do I have to try and find a dog or a snake or a hen or whatever else they consider to be an emotional support animal? How far, Jesus, must we go? Let me tell you a story. Who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? I assume there's a reason that that's the very first question we ask. And I think the reason may have to do with something like this. That we assume the only problem that we have in actually loving our neighbors, the only shortcoming we might run into, is that we just don't have the correct definition of neighbor. In other words, if Jesus just gives us a little clarification then we can nail this command too. Right? Isn't that kind of our thought? I mean, if it's too open-ended, yeah, there's no chance we could keep this command. So Jesus, just give us a little more detail so that it's possible, so that we can do it. And so we look at this parable, and further we look to Jesus for the mysterious definition of, of neighbor. We look for some clear parameters that are going to make this whole deal manageable for us. But please notice with me that when we do that, I think we fall into the very same mistake that this lawyer made. Notice he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And there's a presumption in that question. It's the presumption that I can do what it takes to inherit eternal life if I only know what that is. 
It's a question of information. And so his question of Jesus, what he comes looking for from Jesus, think about this. It has nothing to do with his own person. It has nothing to do with his own heart, nothing to do with his own soul, nothing to do with his own strength, nothing to do with his own love. All he comes looking for is information, a definition. Define for me who it is I'm supposed to love, and then I'll go and do it. It's all about the object of his neighbor love. There's nothing about the subject of neighbor love. Nothing about the person who is doing the loving. There seems to be an assumption here, friends, that our only issue with neighbor love is just a clear definition of who it is we're supposed to be loving. But again, I wonder if that's true. Let's just think about this parable for a moment. Let's go with the most traditional, most basic definition of a neighbor that we know. Okay, let's think of someone who lives nearby us, who lives close, someone we rub shoulders with on a fairly frequent basis, somebody we know very well. According to that most traditional, basic definition of a neighbor, who should have stopped to help in this parable? Well, it was the priest and the Levite, right? The ones we expected to stop. I mean, we can pretty much assume that the man who was mugged in this story was probably a Jew, maybe someone from the very same region, someone who probably lived nearby, maybe someone who even went to the same synagogue with these men. The priest and the Levite, they didn't have to ask the question, who is my neighbor? They didn't have to ask, is this a neighbor of mine? That was a no-brainer for them. All they had to do was stop. And neither one of them did. Neither one of them did. We sort of make the assumption, friends, when we read this story, that if we had the definition of of neighbor, and if the person who was lying half dead in the street, if that person fit that definition of neighbor, then we would just sort of naturally stop. Because we would know, yes, I'm supposed to stop and help this person, and therefore, naturally, we would do that. But I wonder if that's true. Is there anything natural when it comes to to neighbor love, to loving our neighbors? Is that something that comes natural to us? Friends, I, I think you may agree that Sometimes, in fact, oftentimes, it's the people who are closest to us that we have the hardest time loving. It's not that we doubt there are neighbors. They're just hard people to love. Or we're just not very loving people. There's another presumption here. And that is that Well, God's people would naturally act differently 
okay? God's people would naturally act differently. We expect the Levite, we expect the priest to act differently here. We expect the Jews in the Old Testament, we expect Christians in the New Testament are simply going to act differently in these kinds of situations, right? Why? Well, because we're different people. We're familiar with the Bible. We naturally love our neighbors. We naturally understand our responsibility, and therefore we would stop. Jonathan Tarks is a sports writer um, for The Ringer. I'd like to share with you something that he wrote this week. He tells the story of how when he was six years old, his father was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. He writes that when many people think of, of Parkinson's disease, they, they think of the shaking that they see. But he says that's only the beginning. Parkinson's gradually robs you of the ability to control your body at all. He says, my dad went from needing a cane to needing a back brace to needing a walker and finally a wheelchair. Things really went south, he says, after he had open heart surgery. His body never recovered. He had to take so much medicine that it became hard to talk. In other words, he was there, but he was really no longer there. I was 12, he says. I was 12. That's the age when your parents go from authority figures to actual people. That never happened for me and my dad. We never got to know each other. What did he like doing? What were his experiences growing up? What were his goals in life? And there's the simpler stuff too. How do you tie a tie or grill a burger or fix a car? I had to figure it out all on my own. I remember my dad did have a lot of tennis trophies in his office. It's because he went to the club all the time before he got sick. It had tennis courts and racquetball courts, a, a swimming pool and an outdoor track. It's where he made most of his friends. Everyone was supportive at first. They brought us food, drove him places and got him in and out of the car. But those visits slowly dried up over time. My dad kept getting sicker and could no longer do the things that had made them friends in the first place. People moved or had kids or got busy at work. Even the Christmas cards stopped coming. By the end, the only people who stopped by the house were nurses and healthcare workers. My dad died when I was 21. There were a bunch of people at his funeral whom I hadn't seen in years. They all told me how sorry they were and asked whether there was anything they could do. All I could think was, I don't know any of you. I know of you. I've heard your names, but I don't know you. The lie that society tells us is that our friends can be our family. That's the premise of TV shows like Friends and Seinfeld and How I Met Your Mother. 
We can all leave our hometowns behind and have exciting adventures in the big city with people that we meet. And those people will love us and take care of us and be there for us. But the truth is, people get busy and they move away and you discover it's just not true. And we don't like to hear things like that. People failing to love or falling short of what others really need. We don't like to hear those kinds of things. And yet, let's be honest, we understand it, right? I mean, after all, these, these people that he was writing about, these were people from the gym. I mean, they weren't, they weren't friends from church. These folks didn't know God's law. And therefore, you really can't expect them to stop and to help and to keep helping and to keep helping. It's just more than you can ask, right? But what's the assumption there? When we think those kinds of thoughts, what's the assumption? The assumption is that, well, as Christians, we would do a much better job of loving because Christians are more familiar with God's commands. We know God's law. We've read it our whole lives. We're familiar with it. We know what it requires. We know what God wants us to do, and that's enough, right? If we have the knowledge, then we can do it. I'd like you to notice something else about this parable. The whole parable is prompted by a question, right? A question that sort of takes over the whole thing. Who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And we just sort of assume that, that the parable that Jesus tells is an answer to the lawyer's question. Who is my neighbor? Jesus tells him a, a, an answer or a story that answers that question. Who is my neighbor? But look with me, if you still have your Bibles open, look with me at verse 36. Jesus tells the story, and then he asks a question, and the question is this, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Which of these three acted like a neighbor? Jesus asks. See, it turns out Jesus wasn't defining for us at all who our neighbors are or who they might be. He's not defining that for us. He's not defining the object of neighbor love with this story. Jesus has been defining the subject of neighbor love. This is what it looks like, he says, to be a good neighbor. Turns out, friends, the objects of neighbor love, the objects are numberless. They're limitless. There's more than we could imagine. The question in the parable is, how many people are doing neighbor love? 
And this turns everything upside down. Makes us ask, I wonder if there's something more that, that I might need from Jesus, more than a definition of who it is I'm supposed to love. Is there something more that Jesus can give me that might actually make me the kind of person who would notice somebody laying alongside the road and stop and help and give and keep giving? Could Jesus actually have something to make me that kind of person? Maybe we can get at that question via another question that we asked in the cafe, and that was, what might prevent you from helping somebody? What might actually prevent you from helping? There are good reasons, right? One of the answers that I heard and we heard from the fourth grade class was, you know, something that may have prevented the, the priest and the Levite from helping were, were maybe a fear of becoming unclean themselves. Okay, so there were religious reasons not to help. But maybe they are also afraid that they might get waylaid just like the person lying in the road. Right? It's sort of this stranger danger kind of thing. Um, we have to be careful who we help because we could get ourselves in trouble as well. So it's a personal safety kind of concern. And, and personal safety issues are legitimate, aren't they? I mean, we all have them. We take personal safety very seriously. It's why we try, and I'm talking about us, it's why mo most of us at least try to live as far away from the Jericho Road as possible so that we don't have to travel it ourselves. And it's why we give our children cell phones so that if they're ever in danger, they can actually reach out to their parents and ask for help. And it's why we buy cars that have like 135 airbags in them because we're trying to keep ourselves safe. At the same time, we also know God's law, don't we? Love your neighbor as yourself. If we put all that time and all that energy into making sure that, that we are safe, are we putting all that time and all that energy into making sure that our neighbors are safe? Do we ever ask, I wonder how many airbags are in that old clunker that they drive? Do we ever ask, I wonder how we could make the road to Jericho a little safer if that's the road they've got to travel every day? Or maybe it's not the road to Jericho. Maybe it's Center Avenue or Fond du Lac Ave. You ever feel any responsibility for that road? The truth is, the amount of money and time that we spend loving and protecting ourselves, it often leaves no money or time left over for us to protect our neighbors. To love them the way we love ourselves. I wonder if the way Jesus might handle that kind of situation is he might say, maybe you just need to balance those out. Maybe if, if you spent a little less time and money on yourself and your own safety, maybe you'd have a little left over to spend on somebody else's safety. 
And if he were saying something like that, what might actually move us to do that? To spend less attention on ourselves and more on someone else. What might actually move us to do that? Well, I wonder if we were so convinced and so assured that my own well-being has been taken care of at the cross of Jesus, if I was so assured that I had nothing to worry about for all eternity, if I just might have something left for somebody else. This is called gospel assurance. The assurance that our lives are safe in the hands of Jesus. They always will be. That we are loved, that our sins are paid for, that our eternity is safe in His hands. And when a person knows those things, when a person knows Jesus, they become a different kind of neighbor. They become a gospel neighbor. The subject of neighbor love has changed. Sometimes we look at this Samaritan, right? The Samaritan who helped, and, and we call him a hero. And I suppose, you know, in the eyes of many of us, he was a hero. I wonder what he would have thought about that. You know, you, you talk to heroes sometimes, and you say, oh, you're a hero for what you did. What do they say? Well, I, I just did what anybody would have done. I did what the situation demanded. I wonder if the Samaritan might say very similar things. I just did what anyone would do, right? In other words, neighbor love is already a part of who he is. That decision was made long ago, beforehand. I'm a neighbor. Why? Because Jesus was a neighbor to me. I want to go back to that story in the ringer once more. The reason Jonathan Tarks tells that story about his father is that it's because he himself is now a father. He has a two-year-old little boy. And like his own father, um, Jonathan himself is now sick. And he has terminal cancer. He doesn't know how much longer he's going to live. There is one thing that's different about him from his father, however, and that is that he's a Christian. He belongs to a church. He belongs to a life group. And in that life group and in that church, he's been cultivating Christian friendships He's been doing life with people that he doesn't always agree with. In fact, sometimes he doesn't even always like. But they're people that he shares a bond with in Jesus Christ. They have been saved by his blood. And he trusts, he trusts that these relationships, that bond to Jesus Christ, will make things different for his own son. It's not that his friends go to church. 
It's not even that they read their Bibles and so they know more. It's the fact that they've been saved by Jesus. It's the fact that they owe their lives to Jesus. This is how he concludes his article. He says, there are some things from the Bible that I've been leaning on over the past year. James 1.27, religion that our God and Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. Isaiah 1.17, learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. Exodus 22, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. There are hundreds of verses like that, he writes. I've already told some of my friends, when I see you in heaven, there's only one thing I'm going to ask. Were you good to my son and my wife? Were you there for them? Did you know my son? Did he know you? I don't want Jackson to have the same kind of childhood that I did, he says. I want him to wonder why his dad's friends always come over and shoot hoops with him. Why they always invite him to their houses. Why there are so many of them at his games. I hope that he gets sick of them. One thing I've learned from this experience is that you can't worry about the things you can't control. I can't control what will happen to me. I don't know how long I will be there for my son. All I can do is make the most of the time that I have left. That means investing in other people so they can be there for him. Those other people, that investing is making friends with people who have been changed by Christ into neighbors. Let's bow together in prayer. Lord Jesus, you give us this story not just for more information. It's not just information that we need. It's a change of heart. It's a change from knowing the law as words that are written on stone and having those words, those same words, written on our hearts. Lord, that only happens when a transformation takes place. That only happens when we truly come to you, recognizing that you are the only one who can save us from our sins. You are the only one who can do what it takes to give us eternal life. And you are the one who must change us into people who actually know what it means to love people who have been loved 
know what it means to love others. And so may we know the fullness of your love that we may become the kinds of neighbors you always meant us to be. This is our prayer in Jesus' name.